Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. <laughs> I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Ah. Live from the gleaming, streamlined, state-of-the-art studios of OutlawRadioLive.com, nestled, like that, nestled, in our secret bunker somewhere in the Los Angeles area. The following program, True Crime Uncensored, is produced with an artistic vengeance by Magic Matt Allen on the Outlaw Radio Network. I am the legendary Burl Bear, radio director, born in rock and roll, oh, that, uh, the cradle uh, of rhythm and blues. I was all over that, that line. Yeah, best-selling true crime author, oldest man in the room. Yeah, <laughs> all of that. And you are Howard Lapidus, yes, manager to the star. Sitting next to me, and hopefully his microphone is disabled, is Mark C.G. Boyer. <coughs> well, thanks a lot, Burl. Oh, God, it's not. <laughs> Today... I, I was hoping, too. Yeah. <laughs> Best laid but we plans. kid Mark, you know that. Yeah, you maybe you do. <laughs> I do. It's dark in here. It's dark as the inside. No, I won't say that. Oh man. <laughs> hey, you know who we got on the show today? Well, I'd like you to tell us. Uh, Professor Janet McClellan, one of our first guests when this show started almost 11 years ago, and she's every bit as life and lovely and wise and wonderful as she was the day we first browbeat her into submission on this program. Well, there you go. Yeah. I wasn't here then. No, no. Mark uh, Mark wasn't here either. No. No, it was uh, Don Waldman and myself and uh, Matt. We were all agape, aghast. Yeah. We were amazed and amused, aghast, agog, and thunderstruck. Yeah, that's it. Yes, upon the Sinai of Revelation, by the introduction, thou shalt never apprehend my essence. <laughs> Whoa! Wow. Uh-huh. Yeah, he, he's, he's a deep thinker. Man, yeah. he is. Yeah. Why don't you get to the show with Mr. Oh, yeah. Hey, Janet McClellan. Yes. Hi there. Welcome back. Well, thank you. You know, you were one of our first guests uh, about 11 years ago. And people are still talking about it because I reposted one of your old shows recently. So... Ah. And, uh, we were talking about lust killers, and, mm -hmm. uh, which is not the same as blockers. <laughs> it's, uh, right. <laughs> not the same as what? Blockers. Blockers? Yeah. You know, what are you talking about? That people well, who interfere every, with you. Everyone knows but you, Howard. Yeah, that's <laughs> for sure. Everyone knows. There's even you. a movie called Blockers with a picture of a large rooster on the ad. Get it? Do the math. Yeah. Figure it out. <laughs> A lust killer is not someone who kills your opportunity to have sex. Correct, Janet? Um, they think of it as a sexualized homicide. That does not necessarily mean in any way that the individual is doing it because they want to engage in sex, but it heightens their arousal, um, whether or not they actually complete <laughs> Uh, any sexual acts, the uh, the crime scene itself, and the, uh, the their behavior towards the body is sexualized, which can mislead an investigation. Oh, how does it mislead them? Well, you know, we all have tendencies to uh, categorize uh, things that we observe. Yeah. And so if if what you're doing is a, a crime of what looks like a crime of passion. Uh, if it is, uh, if there are sexual um, uh, inferences on the site uh, or on the body of the individual, but it may not, in fact, been that. It could have been incited by anger, uh, that the individual was predatory in nature, or that so they So they're so mad at somebody, maybe, let's say I'm really mad at uh, Susie Pivnik, right? And, uh, okay. and I take my anger out in a sexualized form. So it's not that I got great lust for Susie. It's like I'm really ticked off at her, and I'm going to show my power over her by, A, killing her, which will a. really teach her a lesson. So there is no B, then. And then, B, she could be dead. Yeah. And I could still, like... Oh, you're still going to do that. I'm still going to do it, like yeah. Robert Lee Yates and some of these other necrophiliac uh, fun lovers. Exactly. And, you know, the, the thing about necrophilia, uh, by and large, in regards to serial killers is that it's a part of the progression of their behavior uh, in the uh, attacks on uh, their victims. Well, it's yeah, if the victim is dead, first of all, they're not going to put up much of a struggle. There's that, yes. <laughs> there is that. Uh, but the other...
other thing is is that then they can, you know, uh, leave the body. Uh, as Well, for example, uh, you know, Ted Bundy yeah. did. And then go back and encounter the body until they no longer wish to or, you know, yeah. You know, I was once... Uh, having intimate relations with a woman, and suddenly it crossed my mind, I hope she's not dead. <laughs> so I, I, I held my, my watch crystal. I don't know what to tell you about <laughs> that, girl. I held my watch crystal up to her mouth to see if it would fog up from breath. And she said, what are you doing? And I said, just checking to see if you were still alive. <laughs> <laughs> and how'd that go for you? Yeah, that didn't go over too well. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That was our one and only date. Thank goodness. <laughs> For her, yeah. So uh, people, uh, it, can, it can have sexual components but not be sexually motivated. Exactly. Hang on, hang on. I'm still back on that other story. <laughs> yeah, I have her running to her friends going, guess what he did? He held his watch up. <laughs> to see if I was still breathing. Right. Well, that's compassionate. Yeah, okay. Let's yeah. get back, back uh, to the show. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And so, yes, um, you know, a number, a number, of, like you said, a number of years ago now, um, I you know, did the book on uh, uh, lust murder, which uh, I, I'm going to spend probably this year revising and updating it. Did you learn some uh, more about lust in the last few years? Well, actually, what one of the things that uh, I've been working on is uh, you remember the typologies that we spoke about and that uh, were in the book uh, on lust murder, and that had been developed by oh the four or five leading theorists and researchers uh, at that time, and they were quite frankly uh, well because they were early uh, in a lot of ways and incomplete uh, and then competitive that as such, and the competitive profiles do not really help provide uh, direction, ideas. Uh, so if you're, a, if you're a, a, a homicide detective, you need more than just these categories. English. Right. Try English. Yeah. You, yeah, need, you need something that's going to give you some practical, useful crime-solving information, such as the yeah. perpetrator's name and address. That would always be helpful. And, you know, the whole idea behind a typology is that it gives you possibility for the direction of your investigation. It's not necessarily going to give the name, but it can, if you're doing your uh, investigation well, it can send you in directions that are more profitable than, uh, than not. Mm-hmm. So, in regards to the reissuance and updating of, of the book on lust murder, uh, what I've done is to create um, four typologies that combine, essentially, the best and most reliable aspects of, of the characteristic of the, uh, the serial murder in each instance. Well, okay, wait a, wait a second. So I want to make sure I'm understanding this properly. Sure. So it could be that the previous books or previous category, category, uh, listings. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah. Categorization. Yes, that's the word I'm searching for that I can't pronounce. Uh, was written or were written for fellow uh, um, lust murder writing people <laughs> and not for the criminal investigator. So, yes. So, in large part. And there were so many of them out there. It was like 20 of them out there. Uh, you kind of had to, if you would, let's say, uh, pick your favorite flavor, which is not terribly productive. No. <coughs> or pick your most so, likely suspect and not let go of it. Uh, right, right. And as, as you know and, and understand as uh, somebody who's interested in investigation, uh, forming an opinion or performing, uh, forming a uh, idea of what happened too soon can literally lead you down the wrong path right. to the wrong person, and then the the the, the victim uh, does not get justice, and the perpetrator goes free. Yeah, that's or, a problem. That's a common problem. But we solved the case. We sent someone to prison. <laughs> wrong person, yeah. but. Right, right. Just, just anybody will not do in these instances. It needs to be the person. Yeah. That, you know, Ideally, it would be the person who did it who went to prison and not some poor innocent schmuck. Right, right. So I 
present in the uh, in the new book, uh, uh, African American Serial Murder. Uh, I present uh, in part the uh, the new characterization list that include the the what the person's like, their profile, what you're going to see at the crime scene, the kinds of forensic findings you're going to see, and uh, the the victim, the the typical victim of that perpetrator in those instances. Now, and a list of uh, that stuff was Mark Boyer coffee, by the way people who keep notes uh personal investigations uh or reasons for committing this murder could be revenge profit right domination yes. desperation now what's this desperation business that's what howard and i feel about you okay desperation <laughs> uh, I, I don't know maybe you're uh, there was a fellow by the name of i believe wilkes here probably a good 30 40 years ago uh, who developed a little list of about nine reasons, if you will, why people commit homicide, mm -hmm. general homicide, you know, uh, the basic domestic homicide onto uh, money, revenge. Right, depressive, psychotic, afflicted with uh, organic brain disorder, psychopathic, passive-aggressive, alcoholic, hysterical, which doesn't mean necessarily very funny, uh, juvenile youth, Mentally disabled and sex killers. Those were his ten. See how good our fact checker Mark Boyer well is. Done. You're good. You're good. Yes. Yes. Right. Around well, the uh, the the sex homicide thing. Well, I mean that was pretty loosely defined at, at that point. But yes, those, that particular list, and that's a pretty good, reliable list. But it was a list, as I indicate, uh, is we mentioned. You know, was created uh, decades ago, and. The number of uh, victims or perpetrators in each one of those categories has changed dramatically over the last, you know, 40, 50 years because American society has changed. Ah. So do we have more more murders uh, for different reasons? I mean, how has it changed? Well, uh, we're in the 19... 60s and the 19 early 1970s, you were looking at uh, the, the typical homicide being that of uh, uh, the domestic issue. Ah, like let's yeah. kill the wife, let's kill the husband, the girlfriend, the boyfriend, uh, somebody with whom you have the, the relative. It's relationship. Well, that's like Howard says that he would never do that, but he can understand it. Uh, yes, uh, I, I think there's a famous English quote by some woman that uh, when they asked her whether or not she would consider divorce, she said, divorce never, homicide frequently. <laughs> <laughs> well, she's right there. Yeah, she's correct. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, that's what always amazes me, Janet. Uh, and, you know, because, you know, I, I deal with a lot of true crime killings and that sort of thing and investigate them. And we had that case of Mandling Williams who uh, murdered her kids and then attacked her husband with a samurai sword, uh, whacking him 97 times or something with this uh, razor-sharp sword. And then uh, after he was dead, she sat down and wrote him a suicide note, <laughs> which no one was buying that one. Who the hell keeps a samurai sword in the house? Well, well I guess a lot of people. Yeah. Oh, Mark C.G. Boyer. Yeah, 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 sure you do. Yeah. Uh, I'd love to see you well, in a, your samurai uh, suit. Well, you know, it, actually, you know, it's an interesting story because it really kind of highlights the, the whole thing. That nobody arrives at that particular place accidentally or uh, in, in some instantaneous moment. Uh, the, the idea that, you know, the fact that she did those things, uh, there were hints, if you will, huge situational life event hints that were occurring in and around her, her family, her neighborhood, people that she knew, they just weren't reading it. Yeah. The signs and were there. But this is what amazes me. Now, this particular case, she fell in love or lust with somebody else and decided she didn't want to be married and didn't want to have these kids, and she wanted to run off with uh, this other character. She could have simply gone to her husband and said, Honey, I'm out of here. You get to keep the kids. We're done. But instead, she kills the kids and attacks them with a samurai sword. This is not very good thinking on her part. Well, uh, the, the, the problem of thinking is pretty large.
charge there. The, <laughs> and again, you know, again, it's one of those things where uh, those hints of not not making good decisions, mental health issues or the lack thereof, those had to have been uh, huge, huge signs blinking along the way. So, anyway... Most, most, um, people, most people aren't thinking in terms of, gee, this particular behavior may lead her to chop her husband up. I mean, because if... People's minds don't go there. No. You know, you're not looking for for those signs. Unless we're talking about no, no. But you know, uh, along that line, now that you mention it, there's a, a concept that uh, uh, was written about and developed a number of years ago called a um, oh, victim precipitated homicide. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, uh, in victim precipitated homicide uh, is essentially that the victim sets up a situation, whether they're realizing that they're doing it or not, usually there's some telltale signs, that ultimately uh, results in their death hmm. by another person. And uh, let me give you an example. Uh, you're standing in line to, you know, to go to a movie theater, and somebody brushes past you and, and, and bumps into you, okay? Yeah. There are, there are a number of ways in which you can respond to that. One of them is to ignore it because, you know, stuff happens. People bump into each other. Another is for, you know, maybe you might say, uh, excuse me, or you could say, excuse you, you know, to that person. Or you could, re you know, respond by saying something that's very sharp, like uh, when they bump into you, going, look the hell where you're going, or what you, the hell do you think you're doing? Right. Okay. Now, at, at this juncture, the person that's bumped into you uh, has a, a can respond the same way by saying, ignoring you, or turning around, asking you to clarify what you meant. Now, you, as the person, instigate uh, essentially this uh, this verbal con. You're you're the victim at victim-precipitated homicide situation. So in other words, okay? if you piss me off enough, I'm liable to kill you, and it's your fault. Look what he made me do. Look what he made me do. So the person that you know, that has bumped into you, because you inquire from them to explain themselves, and they oblige by going just, let's say, that they say and decide to uh, follow your lead and go, well, you asshole, if you get out of the way. Yeah. And so you have an escalation of hostilities. Exactly. Exactly. And so it escalates up until they could maybe they go home, get a knife, or go to their car, get a gun. Well, we saw that a lot during the uh, the gas crisis, where people were would get so mad about someone getting in front of them, getting gasoline at the gas station, that they killed them, hitting, you know, beat them to death with a tire iron or something. Road rage. You know, instances of, of road rage. Uh, there have been uh, homicides that, you know, occur within a domestic environment where uh, one person, let's say that oh, there was this one case of uh, this guy, every time his wife walked past him, he would smack her on her tush. Right. And she said, stop it. You do that one more time, you know, I'm going to bean you with a... a yeah, beanbag. Beanbag, a pan. Uh, how about she take another route? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, apparently there was only, you know, it's, <laughs> in this instance, he was apparently one of those those guys that couldn't get his own uh, beer. Oh. Right? So she was, you know, getting him his beer or sandwiches or whatever in the world it was. So on the, on the fourth time through when he did this, she went back in the kitchen, got a uh, cast iron skillet, of some weight and came back in and bashed him. Jeez. Well, I bet he was upset. He, well, he could have been or would have been had he recovered from that. Apparently, uh, she had a real heavy right cross. Ooh. Well, this reminds me of another story similar where a guy comes home from work sits down in front of the TV. There's a game coming on. He says, honey, he says, will you bring me a, a beer before it starts? And so she does, and he drinks that one and says, honey, will you bring me another beer before it starts? 
and does, she does this about three or four times. Finally, she gets fed up and says, you're nothing but a lazy, good-for-nothing drunk. And he says, now it starts. Uh, <laughs> That's a great bad joke. <laughs> no, it's terrific. I, I actually like that. I'm taking that home. <laughs> yeah, that, that's essentially uh, it. So, have you had a chance to read uh, uh, anything of the uh, African American uh, serial killer book? I didn't get a chance to, to devote the amount of time to reading uh, Killer Schwartz's whatever the title of the book is. That was the matter with you. <laughs> What's the matter with you? Yeah. Well, I remember, remember when Hart D. Fisher, who's been a guest on the show a few times, yes. does the American Horrors uh, <laughs> channel, uh, his film that he made years ago, many years ago, called The Garbage yeah. Man, was uh, about an African-American serial killer. At, at the time, people said, that is really weird. An African-American serial killer? I thought all serial killers were, you know, like middle-aged white guys in America. And this guy is, is not. And they thought that was so strange. But in your book, uh, apparently that's not as strange as we might think. No, no, not... Not at all. They, um, what I've what I've found is that essentially it's a, they represent a the proportion of the population in terms of uh, serial killers. Is the is everything that proportionate all the way down the line? I mean, is it? I is it no, I mean, uh, the uh, African Americans are a certain portion of the population. Twelve percent or something. Whatever. Uh, so wouldn't that just lay over the amount of uh, you know serial killers? So if 12, if it, yeah, so that's my point. So all right, we're done. <laughs> but, but, but you know, but however, the problem has been that nobody's you know a couple of different problems with it. Nobody has really studied it. Uh, additionally, I'm I'm not the only one who's run into some difficulties trying to uh, have such information published. Well, let's whoa 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 whoa, 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 whoa. what's the problem with getting it published? There we go. Well, the problem with getting it published is that there's a re there's a reluctance in the media and mediums to recognize that uh, African American serial killers exist. One of the reasons being is that we have that myth that uh, yes, that it's only uh, white guys, and two, that it's only really, really, really bright people to commit serial murder. You know the. Uh, the standard trope about it being some sort of serial killing genius out there, right? Yeah. And that uh, because of the biases and prejudices that that uh, exist in uh, in America about uh, African Americans not being all that bright, not capable of planning, not oh, capable. Oh come on, really? Well, <laughs> that, that's show me the. Is that not in the media? Well, I guess they, you don't find very many African American swimmers. Remember that one? <laughs> um, yes, those sorts of misconstruing myths and uh, misidentifications leak, spread, flow over into absolutely everything. And the problem with that is that if one ignores the fact that, yes, they could be equally represented in serial murder, it means that we're ignoring the victim, which is the real crux of the issue, yeah, which means that those crimes can go mostly unsolved. And so you continue to have people ignore the victims, and therefore greater number of victims could occur. Mike Boyer has a question. <clears throat> do that. Do these individuals <clears throat> are Hello? the victims predominantly black, or is there just a generic? I, I'm unable to hear. Uh, what what he's saying. trying to say, in his own unique way, is he's asking: uh, Are the victims of the African American serial killers African Americans? Predominantly, yes. There you go. By the greatest majority, yes. So if we have biases and prejudices in the United States in ways against persons of African-American descent, then we're not only ignoring, you know, what's called the serial killers, but we are seriously ignoring the victims of, which are the women and predominantly women and children wow. of African-American descent as well. 
So that shows if they're the victims, they're being underserved in terms of justice and uh, following through. With the whole, yeah, which is the whole reason for my having uh, uh, written the book, is that it's high time that that, you know, denying the victim and uh, leaving people vulnerable to that sort of victimology uh, ends. But, of course, we, we have a real problem with homicide clearance rate in the United States anyway. Well, yeah, no uh, kidding. You know, in Alaska, for example, uh, prior to their formation of the Homicide uh, Task Force uh, that actually did a, a fantastic job in, in fixing that, they had a, a clear rate on their homicides of under 25%. I mean, if you wanted to kill somebody and get away with it, that was a fine place to do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, exactly. There are, you know, lots of the major cities have crime, uh, I mean, sorry, homicide solve rates well under 50%. Well under 50%. I mean, you've got a, a toss of a coin chance of being caught for perpetrating a homicide. Wow. And, you know, uh, Washington, D.C. is at 41% solve rate. Jeez. Well, it's... Uh... Uh, as uh, Brad Maverick's father said, you can fool some of the people all the time and all the people some of the time, and those are pretty good odds. Those are pretty good absolutely. But so much of the time what's happened is that we're not looking to solve uh, or well solve those crimes, that there's misinformation, there's myths surrounding the murders or, and the victims. And uh, there are policies and procedures in place that actually reduce and undermine the, the solvability rate. Whoa, so whoa, whoa, whoa. That's, that's an important piece of information right there. What are these policies, what are these things that, are, uh, that interfere with the uh, solution of the crime? Well, I, I go into uh, that in, in some detail uh, in the book, and that's, <laughs> that's me kind of pushing that to the, the side a bit, but it's uh, policies and procedures, how cases are assigned, um, you know, to, to, to the, the division, whatever that uh, d division might be called in a particular community. Um, <clears throat> The, the materials and means available to those uh, those detectives and investigators. Um, what uh, processing of the, the scenes and, and uh, practices used, well, let me stop there. Do you know how many uh, untested uh, uh, rape kits exist in the United States? Oh my God, I understand they're stacked like cordwood in warehouses. Yeah, tens of thousands. So, and there are serial rapists in those untested boxes. Okay. Um, so, policies and practices. Um, okay. Use and let me give you an example of a, a policy practice. Uh, kind of, it's a little nebulous, but okay. You as an individual can tell me what it is, or say to me what it is that are your personal priorities in life. And if, if, if we were close friends, I'd go, okay, now that you've told me that list of three or four things, how much money do you spend each year on those things? Right. And in part, that's going to, and what you reply in regards to that is going to tell me, based on the dollar figure, just how important each one of those priorities are. Right. You can tell me what's important, but if you're not spending the people, the money, and the time at it, then it's not so much. Right. Maybe, follow maybe the money. <laughs> follow the money. Oh, yes. In, in so many instances, follow the money. Um, law enforcement agencies, and that's why I brought up those three things, law enforcement agencies, like every other governmental entity or business in the world, has three things that it can direct uh, and use as focus on any issue it wants to address. That's time, money, you know, and people. It's how much time the people spend doing the job, how focused they are on what are identified as the, uh, the criteria for the mission, and how much money, or therefore the people and the equipments and the supplies, uh, et cetera, are applied to that. 
So you can tell me that a thing's a high priority, but if those things do not match what your policy statements are, then it's not that important. Well, then we saw that absolutely in the uh, the strange case in Canada where all these women were being uh, murdered by the guy who had the hog farm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the cops uh, knew who was doing it, but they they really couldn't be bothered, and their excuses were, we don't have the resources, we don't have the money, we don't have mm-hmm. the training, and the victims are disposable. There is there there is that. It's, uh, there, I can't remember the author's name right now, but uh, there was this wonderful article called The Missing Missing. And it's the, the missing, missing are those persons that are pro- probably uh, victims of homicide. They've become missing, some you know, from some locale, but they're not they, of interest to law enforcement because, well, they're probably a part of a, a group, one of the set of groups that uh, they say don't matter. They yeah. or they act as though they do not matter. So your point's well taken. Well, it's like the. Uh uh, they would say, oh, well, my friend Susie uh, vanished. She went to the hog farm uh, on a date and never came back. He'd go, well, you know, uh, people in that line of work move around a lot. She probably just left town, you know, so don't bother us with it. Right, right, right. But, you know, that's the thing. That's a, when, Going back to uh, one of the things uh, we mentioned earlier about things changing in the United States in regards to uh, society, uh, over the last 50, 60 years, we've become a much different society than we were back then. We're much more mobile. Uh, jobs are much more transient, if you will. Mm-hmm. And so instead of being, if you will, a country where uh, homicide takes place neighbor to neighbor, family and family, we're now ever so much more a nation of strangers. And some of us are stranger than others. And that would be the problem. You know, we don't know or relate to the neighborhoods or persons in our environments as our parents or grandparents. And well, so, they have yeah, guys, I think it was Israel Keys who would travel to somewhere in the country and plant his kill kit there, and then a few years later go back and get the kill kit and kill people and go back home. We're going to take a 60-second break. We'll be right back with Janet McClellan on True Crime Uncensored. Formerly hosted by Burl Bear and Don Woldman. But Don Woldman is dead. True crime unsplintered. Burl Bear and Howard Lapidus. Very, uh, very much alive. And dead. Mark uh, C.G. Boyer. Dead. You so, know. No, no. Yeah. Not dead yet. Not We're dead. working on it. Not dead yet. No. Uh, I make you guys. Not sir. Oh, yes, sir. Boy, let's take a piece of the show off and just listen. Oh, yeah. Breaking my heart to hear this. Uh, well, let's get back to it. Let's get back to the show. Uh, we got Professor Janet McClellan. Uh, we've had her on the show uh, several times in the past uh, 10, 11 years. Previously talking about lust murders. And she uh, took her a book on African-American serial killers. You must have updated this one, too, because you had kind of a version of it out a few years ago. But uh, uh, it's spiffier now, I guess. Uh, quick look at the table spiffier. of... Spiffier. Spiffier, yeah. Uh, take a look at the table of contents, uh, depictions in film, switchback. I remember that one, Danny Glover. Remember that one? Yep. Uh, yeah. That was an interesting one. You got, and Wayne Williams. We've talked about old Wayne. He was a piece of work. 
He had mother issues, I think. From whose line is it anyway? Yeah, that one, yeah. <laughs> there are a number of problems with um, the Wayne Williams uh, case that I go into uh, some depth, quite a little bit of depth. Um, for example, during his trial, there was an expert in fibers from, the uh, from um, Kansas State University who, in his testimony, indicated that uh, the fibers that the FBI said linked him to the offense, in fact, did not. Hmm. One of the reasons, the primary uh, focus that the, uh, uh, the expert provided was the fact that in Atlanta at that time, there were 10, 20 um, manufacturers of fibers, uh, cloth materials, uh, blankets, etc., in the Atlantic area. And that those fibers, you know how manufacturers are, they have a tendency to dump things, yeah. waste materials, into the river. And so essentially the, uh, the fibers were... Uh, could be found on anything, any item in the river, and that there was no indication that they, that those fibers found, were any link. Yeah, to, that makes to sense. That. Well, unfortunately, the uh, uh, the FBI expert said, "Oh yes, they are. Yes, they did," and that was one of the strongest links that went on to convict him. Now, the other the other thing was that um, they cleared oh, dozens and dozens of homicides. Oh, how convenient. Uh, yes, which none of them, in fact, had little or anything to do with the, um, the types of murders for which he was, the, was it, there was three or four uh, young men. The, uh, that um, for which he was convicted. Now, if you look at all the cases for that they cleared, that they associated with him, none of it makes any sense. Gotcha. They were just well, there's just, always that desire to close those cases, whether it's real or not. And so, and so they did. Let alone the fact that during the same period of time, we now have discovered in the last five, six years that the FBI's uh, crime lab had problems of their own regarding uh, whether or not uh, they were making correct identification of all manner of materials. Uh, you've undoubtedly read you know, some of those reports in the last few years of crime lab uh, with individuals who were both doing the examinations as well as those who were managing it. Oh, yeah, we had some real, uh, some part of the expression, killer cases uh, where uh, the, the labs were manipulating uh, the, the results. Yes, and there were, you know, there were hundreds of cases associated with those, you know, purposeful misidentifications and that, and many of those going back into that time period in which uh, the Wayne Williams case was being tried. Uh, and although those reports came out, we've heard almost nothing about what has happened or re-examinations of those. Although some individuals have had to be freed, uh, Wayne Williams' case is not one of the ones that was re-examined under that list of problems. Hmm. The other thing that, that comes to mind is that we have in this country... Uh, was characterized as the dead white child of the of the week that people get all worked mm. up about. Uh, yes. And what have you ever seen to be an African American child? Yesterday, seriously. Yes, seriously. Yes. There actually was one. Mm -hmm. Amazing, because usually uh, you can have a cute little white kid, uh, you know, supposedly murdered by mom or uncle or aunt or dad or somebody, and it's oh, it's a right. big deal. Uh, at the same time, you could have a, an African-American child or an Asian child, exact same situation. <laughs> you know, the crickets are deafening. Right, absolutely. Let, let, me, um, let me read you a, a quote from a, um, uh, a governmental site here, uh, a government site. 
it says that uh, over 600,000 individuals go missing in the United States each year. Most of those missing children or adults are, are found quite quickly and alive. However, tens of thousands of individuals remain missing for more, you know, and those cases go cold. It's estimated that uh, 4,400 unidentified bodies are recovered each year. Ooh. 4,000? Yeah. Uh, 4,400 unidentified bodies are recovered each year. Where do they store and them? Where do they store them? They don't, they don't, like, store them indefinitely. What do they do with them? Right. So, you know, you, you can sit that in, in both historical and contemporary research in the last 30 years have linked a decrease in the solve rate of homicide to an increase in recidivist perpetrators and the presence of both structural and organizational biases against lower socioeconomic groups, race, and victim ethnicity. So... So if you so want to murder people, murder minorities. Well, or yes, or those they consider of uh, minor significance in uh, terms right, of the right. lives and Prostitutes. Disc jockeys. Disc jockeys, yeah. Right. And those. You know, we, um, in, in the United States, there are roughly 6,000 homicides that go unsolved each year. That's unpleasant. Year. It's unpleasant. And, uh, doesn't the, uh, after a year or so, the, the trail goes cold and it becomes a cold case? I'm sorry, I didn't quite hear that. How long does it take to become a cold case? About a year with no, uh, no action? Yes. And pretty much a, a, a year's worth of uh, inactivity on uh, new information, more information, that kind of thing, not occurring or what, whatever that might mean within a particular agency. It, yeah, it'll go cold. And so, you know, roughly a, a third of all the homicides in the U.S. go cold annually. There's also a problem on, on who you eliminate as potential suspects. Uh, can't recall the name of the book right offhand, but I remember the case quite well because it was the guy who invented Frappuccino uh, for PepsiCo. When he was going to a Bible college, whatever it was, uh, he got a big crush on the uh, uh, admissions woman uh, who admitted she had a crush on him also, but she was married. Now, Jesus wouldn't approve of her getting a divorce, so instead they killed him. Uh, once they killed him, they went, gee, Maybe Jesus doesn't like this either, uh, but they got away with it for 25 years or something like that because uh -huh. they, were, they weren't even seriously considered as suspects because they were nice, white, Christian, upstanding citizens. Well, obviously, they, they, would, they didn't do that, so they weren't even uh, carefully looked at. It wasn't until like 20-some uh, years later they got some new detectives in town, and they decided to reopen the cold case, some uh, right. DNA one thing and another, and... Uh, it turns out they go to the woman's door. She's by this time, you know, it's 27 years later. She's married in a different state, got kids, whatever, nice career. Knock on the door. She opens it. They're the detectives. She goes, I've been waiting 25 years for you guys. And the yeah. amazing thing is the photograph of her after they arrest her and the photograph of her before they come to her, she looks 10 years younger after they arrest her because the stress of waiting those 20-some years for the knock on the door and the weird thing is, you know what you know what she and he got for their planned first degree premeditated murder of her husband? Five, five years each. Each cut a deal to testify against the other in return for five years minimum security. Neither had to testify because they both made the same deal. They both did five years minimum security, went back to work. Wow. How's that? Uh, the value the value of a life. Yeah. Because the value of a, I, mean, I mean, these are respectable people. This guy's a major executive with PepsiCo. You know, obviously he's fine. Well, you know, to me that to me that goes to that other little problematic. I say little. Uh, sorry about that. That's kind of a leftover from my Midwestern upbringing. Uh, the, the 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 problem of the um, the myth of the the <laughs> evil. Monster, who is a serial killer, uh, and I, I I say that the problem is, is it's the words that uh, serial killers are monsters or that they're they're evil. What that does is that 
those kinds of words, I, I think, fix in the, the mind and the imagination of readers, if you will, people that are watching movies or television programs or the news and investigators themselves, that there is a type of individual that they're looking for, what, what makes up or is defined as or is pictured as evil or monstrous in their, in their head. And so they can't see, they can't get out of that, that visualization to see that uh, these people are not, they're the people that do the killing, but that they're not a, uh, a Freddy Krueger person. So if right. they see a not Freddy Krueger person, they can't begin to imagine that that, that person that would do it. Well, this is also a problem in the, in the true crime world. When you write books and they come up with titles for the books, and uh, uh, or even that TV show, Most Evil, uh, Dr. Scott Bond, Doc Bond as we call him, uh, the guy was an NBC executive who became a sociologist, and he did a, mm-hmm. his a master's thesis on uh, mass deception, uh, moral panic in the Iraq War. And he began, track, mm-hmm. began tracking every time the word evil was mentioned in regards to uh, Iraq and Saddam Hussein or whatever. It says, any time you hear the word evil, it's mm-hmm. it's intentional. <laughs> it's because yeah. if there's evil, you can't reason with it. You can't do anything mm-hmm. about it. It is something like this, as you were like a Freddy Krueger-esque sort of thing. And the more the word is used, the more you know there's something going on. There's some sort of, uh, you know... Yeah. Uh, right, so, subtext. Yeah. Exactly. There's a subtext going on, which, you know, and for an investigator having that in their headset, they're, they're not going to easily be able to look at the, the information, the evidence, the uh, potential list of uh, persons who might have been involved in the offense. They're not going to be able to do that in a clean way that would allow them to, without bias and prejudice, continue their investigation. That's really problematic. And, you know, those of us in the true crime industry <laughs> are, are share a certain degree of the guilt in that because of how many books are entitled, you know, Evil This, you know, uh, The Evil That. Uh, and it just, and that sells well. But it doesn't bode well for investigations. Right. Right. Uh you know the uh, absolutely, and I, I'm not sure how it is we get uh, uh, particularly investigators to uh, not do that. We all come or arrive or arrive in adulthood with our our own sets of biases and prejudices for all manner of things. You know, everything from ice cream to who it is that we would befriend. Uh, but maybe the first step is recognizing that, you know, we have those. We have those, and we, we understand what our own biases and prejudices are. Then maybe we can mitigate against the damage that that would do to whatever it is that you do occupationally as a living or within our interactions with other people. Well, you know, my, uh, my significant other today in the car on the way here said, remind me, Burl, to never meet any of your friends. <laughs> he said, because any time I do, I'm stunned, shocked, and mortified. <laughs> With the exception, she said, of Leonard Bouchel. She says, he may be neurotic, but he's okay. We feel the same way about her. Yeah, well, that's true. Uh, <laughs> Uh, she said, I mean, she's so, and the thing is, I've told her that when we first started going together, I said, you don't want to meet most of the people I interact with. Because there are people really on the fringe of society. You know, I mean, Chasey Lane's a great interview, but I don't want to spend that much time with her. Uh, you, you don't want you know, uh, to bring Chasey Lane to the house? Is that right? No, I haven't brought Chasey Lane to the house. Okay. But, uh, I mean... Oh, I know. Uh, I, I understand. I remember years ago I went to a, um, uh, a criminology conference and uh, was excited because one of the, the gentlemen that I had read several of his books and was really impressed with his, um, his work, he was going to be there, and I thought it would be a wonderful opportunity to, you know, to meet him. The problem was that I did. Yeah, that's a big problem right there. 
Oh, and it was, I was, I was never so disappointed in a human being in my life. <laughs> I, I decided that it was better not to meet him and just Don't go meet on. your heroes. <laughs> they say don't yeah. meet your heroes. But I met Howard, and that's too late now. Yeah, I, I met Burl Bear, and look what happened here. <laughs> see, see, yeah, yes. A tragic story. Yes. Uh, I happen to be sitting at a, a table with a woman who is supposedly an expert on, on narcissists. And she writes books mm -hmm. on, on alcoholic narcissists. Guess what she is? An alcoholic narcissist. Gotcha. <laughs> That's <What>? it. <laughs> I didn't see that coming. I, yeah, I didn't see that one coming. <laughs> that was pretty obvious. But it's, I mean, a, a lot of, of course, people I know who are psychologists or psychiatrists became or psychologists or psychiatrists became such because they were trying to figure out what the hell was wrong with themselves, which is yeah. a, a healthy diversion, I guess. Uh, well... My, uh, my, <laughs> my interest in criminal justice, well, I was raised in Leavenworth, Kansas. Oh. And my, my father was a deputy warden, so I've been typecast my whole life, you know, in that particular <laughs> regard. So I, I come to the, the, <laughs> the area of criminology as honestly as one could, I think. <laughs> well, you spent a lot of time as a... Uh, With psychopaths. <laughs> Well, I, uh, you know, I, I first got interested in the study of people who, you know, kill multiple persons uh, when I was a young police officer in the state of Washington. Been and there? there was this what city were you in? Uh, I was in Ellensburg. Oh, I know Ellensburg quite well. It's a lovely little town. Yeah. And... Yeah, and uh, there was a young girl about two months before I arrived who went missing, a uh, Susan Rancourt. And she was one of the victims of a fellow by the name of Ted. And, um, mm -hmm. and at that time, at, when I arrived, uh, ultimately I ended up on uh, working with, uh, when I was one of the people on the task force uh, that was doing the uh, the investigation surrounding um, we called them the Ted murders at right. that time. Yeah, one of your co-workers called me on the phone uh, back then, whose name escapes me, uh, from Ellensburg. And, oh, yeah? And uh, wanted my my psychic input. <laughs> well, Unfortunately, yeah. I was right, but it didn't help me. <clears throat> Hey, you say, know what? Say goodbye. I, I think it's time Thank for us for to coming. say goodbye. Jan and McClellan, congratulations on uh, your windsurfing or surfing, whatever the hell is you doing. We're going to have you back many more times. You know, you know, about a year from now, she's back. Yeah, we'll have you back Love again. Having. You're always fascinating. And I hope Doug Shearer recorded this because I don't think I got it. Oh, good. Good news. <laughs> All right. Hey, Thank Pearl. you, Janet. Thank You're you. You're wonderful as always. Pearl? Yep. What's next? Magic Matt Allen, the Demons of Decadence Live from the Light of Lounge at allradiolive.com. <laughs>